Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast. I'm Keith Caulfield, Managing Director, Charts and Data Operations at Billboard. And I'm Katie Atkinson, Billboard's Executive Digital Director, West Coast. Happy New Year, Katie. Happy New Year, Keith. Oh, doesn't it feel great? 2024, off to off with a bang. It's going to be a big one, I can tell. I, I hope can so. feel it. I can feel it. <laughs> I can, there's just something about the numbers 2024. It does sound nice, actually, now that you say that. <laughs> Why? I don't know, 2024. Maybe all these dates sound great. Because of the 2020. <laughs> this decade just sounds good. Oh. Well, as always, the Billboard Pop Shop podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Today on the show, it's our first episode of 2024. Happy New Year, everybody. On this special edition of the show, we'll discuss what we're looking forward to most this year, or at least hope will happen, both on the charts and in pop music in general. And what better way to start the year than with a supersized interview with a pop legend, Robbie Williams. Yeah. So if you're looking for a good binge watch before the holiday break wraps up, Robbie has a self-titled documentary series on Netflix in which he revisits video footage from throughout his career, starting with his teenage days in the boy band Take That through today. So we caught up with him to talk about what that experience was like and what lies ahead for him in the new year. So stick around for all that. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast provider so you won't miss an episode. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit billboard.com slash podcasts. All right. Uh, as this is our first episode of 2024, uh, we're going to make it a special one. And we are going to look ahead to the rest of 2024 and perhaps uh, what things we are looking to have happen in pop music and perhaps on the charts. A lot of these are just sort of fantasy aspirations for pop music. Mm -hmm. So um, I've come up with three items. Uh, we'll see how many Katie thinks of. Mm -hmm. uh, she could be moved to come up with seven. Yeah, you know, you never know. You might inspire me. <laughs> um, so I'll go first. Okay. Uh, so uh, no, no shocker here. I hope the queen of pop, Madonna, puts out a new album or at the bare minimum, that new song that she was working on with Max Martin last year that she posted about on her Instagram. Where is it? Release the Max Martin song. Where is it, Madonna? <laughs> we know it's there somewhere. I mean, you don't I want to call her out, though, because she called Andy Cohen out on stage for being messy with her on his show. Well, I have not. <laughs> don't call out Madonna. <laughs> I have not been messy with no, Madonna. Don't. Listen, we definitely have not been. Well, as I was saying, uh, let's go back to, <laughs> let's get back to this. Yes. Uh, I would love a new album, love a new song. Uh, you know, her celebration tour is doing big business on the road, reminding people of her four decades of hits. So, hey, let's add another hit to the list with a brand new song in 2024. I also have a diva who I'd like to hear some new music from in 2024. Ooh, who? That woman is named Ariana Grande. Oh. And she is going to star in the Wicked musical movie adaptation that's coming out in Christmas next year. The Wait, first part. 
Wait, 2024? Yes. So... So it's coming out this year. Co- this com- yes, exactly. See, so we, oh, I see. We're in that thing where we keep saying next year, but we mean this year. Okay, so it's coming. Yeah. Oh my God, it's coming at Christmas this year, and so we have a whole calendar year of uh, Ari. She's probably going to go on a, a press tour for the movie at the end of the year. But I'm thinking she has got to be like newly musically inspired by working on Wicked. I mean, it was a long production, right? And she has been out of pop music for a minute. And so I think it would make sense to remind people what a pop star she is before she then puts out an epic Christmas blockbuster. I wonder, though, is there some, like, you know, when you're looking at your career and you're going towards a huge film, is this her film debut? As far as I know. In a enormous, two-part, very expensive, you know, movie, in light of how the movie Cats didn't do well and some other musicals haven't done well on the big screen. There's a lot of pressure going into this wicked uh, film two-parter. Now, we assume the movie's going to be great. Right. Because obviously it's wicked and it's Ari and, you know, the rest of the cast. But I wonder, you know, is she thinking, "Mm, I don't want to distract from the wicked train with a whole new album that may uh, sort of take focus away from wicked even if it's going to be months before. Yeah, but we're talking about a two-part film. If she just puts her career on pause well, for the entirety of this Wicked cycle, we're not getting new music until 2026. Okay, well, that isn't really realistic, <laughs> is it? I just That's why I feel like it's time. It just made me think of like— She's got time. In, I, and also, you know, things are different now. Like people, people can sort of separate two things. I just remember there was yes. a time like when Madonna was going into the release of Evita— and she kind of had to basically say, like, hey, everyone, I'm like a mature singer who's very serious. I'm not just the girl whipped in chains. And she had to kind of like basically sort of yeah. share with the audience. Times in, in a big have way. changed. Times have changed. I also, mean, Taylor's putting out three albums in a year, Taylor, album cycles, put, going on a tour, dating an NFL player. She's doing it all. Taylor's no not. Breaks. Taylor is not in. <laughs> even if Taylor, I guess if Taylor had done, well, was that you? No. Oh, is that just the sound? It's, they're rolling some sort of giant thing Outside. around. Cool. Well, we shall see. And, you know, it would be uh, delightful to get new music from Ariana because it's been, it's been a second. Yes, sure has. All right. Well, speaking of divas, Barbara Streisand released her autobiography. It's the all diva new year, guys. Well, look. <laughs> I, I mean, it's us. <laughs> I can't help it of, of what I like. Barbara Streisand released her autobiography last year. And during her promotional tour run of interviews, she spoke to Stephen Colbert and said that she would like to record more duets. Now, in 2014, a producer she was working with at the time, Walter Afanasiev, who, by the way, co-wrote and co-produced Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, among many other Mariah hits, wrote on his Facebook and elsewhere, I believe, that Barbara was working on a duets album at that time in 2014 and had duets planned with the likes of Michael Bublé, Josh Groban, Blake Shelton, Lionel Richie, Lady Gaga, Beyoncé, and Bette Midler. Well, at the end of 2014, Barbara released her Partners album, which was full of duets with male partners, including Bublé, Groban, Shelton, and Richie. But whatever happened to those supposed duets with Beyoncé, Gaga, and Midler? Did they get recorded? Are they sitting in Barbara's vault in Malibu somewhere? Barbara followed up partners with a sequel duets album, 2016's Encore, 
movie partners sing Broadway. But none of those ladies appeared on the album. There were women on the album, but not those specific women I just mentioned. So now, can you imagine a Barbara Streisand album that was nothing but duets with leading ladies? So, like partners, but with women instead. So what about Barbara with Beyonce, Gaga, and Bette, plus Ariana Grande, Mariah Carey, I don't know, Diana Ross, mm -hmm. Carrie Underwood, Pink, Kelly Clarkson, I know, I don't know, maybe Adele. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just rattling off names here of women divas. with incredible di divas <laughs> with incredible voices that would probably sound lovely with Barbara. Yes. Can you imagine? The can answer you, is yes. Yeah. Of course, I can imagine it. Just imagine. <laughs> I just, and this thing would be an enormous, enormous hit. It would be. It would. I mean, and Ariana and Barbara have performed together live. They did No More Tears, Enough is Enough. Yeah. Which was beautiful. No, I mean, you're right. It's probably all, already like halfway done. And it just <sighs> is, is there waiting. Right there waiting. And see, I don't think, and I think if Barbara put out something that had Ariana on it and it came out this year, I don't think it would distract, detract from, from Wicked at all. It sure wouldn't. It and would she could also it. do a, her own album too, Ari. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> we want it all from Ariana. All right, let's keep the diva train rolling. Um, I'm gonna. Mine is going to be the most likely one we talk about. You're all pie in the sky over here. Well, <laughs> pie in the sky with a sliver of like you know possibility. I'm just. This is just me saying how excited I am for the Dua Lipa album that's definitely coming this oh, year. Oh yeah, well we know that's coming. We actually. Well we don't. Well, actually, actually no, know. we don't. We actually have know. no we calendar. Have we have no timeline. We way, have a single. I I would love for it to be the timeline of Future Nostalgia, which if you remember, uh, let's rewind the clock to 2019 going into 2020. Sorry to do that to you, but Dua Lipa released uh, "Don't Start Now" in November, and then she performed it on the AMAs, and like it was a total hit going into the new year and then this pandemic thing happened but she still kept with the March 2020 release date of that album and she put out Future Nostalgia actually I think she put it out a week earlier because of a leak but anyway yeah. she put out the album in March 2020 so that could mean that we have a Dua Lipa album by March well question yeah. do you remember when they actually announced Future Nostalgia's release date hmm because no. at some point you have to start taking pre-orders and she hasn't done any pre-orders yet and it's think, January I don't think Future Nostalgia was announced in 2019, if that's what you're saying. Yeah, I'm like saying, like, you know, when did they finally announce the album existing so that you could place pre-orders for the, you know, CD But and I think vinyl. we've learned from uh, the experiences we've seen from Dua so far that she doesn't, like, she's not, like, this chaotic pop star that puts out Lucy's. Like, Houdini is the lead single of a project. So it's it's coming. Right. Unless this is some Houdini misdirection. <laughs> I come and I Don't go. look over here. <laughs> there is no release date coming. <laughs> So we'll see. I'm just saying, please, new Dua soon. I wonder I, just, I wonder sonically what it's going to sound like. I know. Well, she said Future Nostalgia was like the end of, like, and Houdini, I think, was the end of her disco era. So I think it's going to be all different. Uh, yeah. I'm okay with that. New. Different. Well, well, I don't. So end of disco. Fine. Can we still have <laughs> dance music? Oh, yeah. I don't think end of disco means end of dance. Okay. Yeah. I mean, think about new rules. That's not disco. Yeah, that was dancey. Yeah, that's dancey. It's still up tempo. Yeah, yeah. I like up tempo Dua. Yes. I think we'll get a mixture. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Christmas might be 12 months away, mm -hmm. but uh, I would love a holiday album from Adele or Beyonce. <laughs> I, it'll never happen. <laughs> Adele. I mean, the Adele Christmas album when she decides to make it. 
Just or just one. I'd love a Christmas song. She's talked about this, right? No, I think you and I have talked, <laughs> We've about, talked it. about it like no, all the time. You and I talked about it when we saw her, when we saw her Vegas show. Yeah, and we. Well, I theorized. <laughs> Literally, the headline from that pop shop, will Adele ever release a holiday album? <laughs> <laughs> it's an evergreen topic. Yes. I think uh, in that in that conversation around her live show, I positioned and theorized, what if Adele recorded at her Vegas residency, you know, a Christmas or holiday song because she had shows at that time around Christmas? Right. What if she did a live recording of a Christmas song and released that as like a one-off? Wouldn't that be delightful? She did not do that. She did not do that. I don't think that's really in the cards, and she probably is just like not moved to do that. Also probably because she – unless she's – I mean, I think a lot of artists see doing a Christmas album as something that either they are obligated to do as like contractually or – uh, something that they do maybe much later in life. Yeah. As opposed to, wow, I creatively want to be fulfilled by doing a Christmas album. Right. I'm like, hmm. And then there's Mariah, who did it at the height of her career. Yeah, but you, I But want- she's MC, Merry Christmas. Yeah, I do. I do <laughs> wonder. I don't know the backstory because I'm not part of the, the Lamely. Um, you know, like, I'm like, I'm a, fa- I'm a fan of Mariah, but I'm not of like, course. don't quiz me on her back catalog. I do wonder, like, well- was her Christmas album something that basically Columbia and Sony said, oh, we really want you to do this? Which They're very probably, glad they did. Well, at the time, <laughs> at the time, considering her status with the label and, you know, her sort of personal life, you know, intertwined with the label. Right. That seems that could that could check out. But also Mariah, I think, really actually truly loves Christmas. I know. I think then. so, too. Yeah. So it could have been a blend of the two. Yeah. I mean, also, she's done two Christmas albums. I know. Sakes, plus a Christmas special and a Christmas EP. Oh, yeah. No, she obviously is into it. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm sure Adele probably loves Christmas, too, but she's like, no, nah, I'm good. I'll just yeah. do a whole new album of original material that I write. Yeah. As opposed to stuff where I'm covering and giving money to other people. And think about how much Mariah has to work during Christmas, too. Everyone else is taking it off. How much and is she's... Mariah really working? <laughs> well, Christmas. <laughs> well, no, I mean, like what, like, what all is Mariah doing? Oh, I mean, she did a concert tour, and she does oh, right. performance on all the specials and things like that. That's sure. what I mean. Lots of performances. Yes. Right. Um, so an Adele or Beyonce Christmas album would be amazing. I think, you know, when you look at kind of the the uh, the voices that have yet to do a Christmas album that would probably at least work on paper, those are the two at the top of everyone's list. Uh, short of like a second Michael Bublé Christmas album. I mean, right. can you imagine? I mean, he will at some point do that. I mean. I don't know when. But. Maybe. I don't know. Um, or my continuing fantasy <laughs> of having Taylor Swift do a re-record of her holiday collection EP that was initially exclusive to Target probably a decade ago and add new from the vault, wink, wink, uh, Christmas songs. From the North Pole vault. I mean, (laughs) I think there were like, I want to say there were like six or seven songs on that. And then since then, she's, I think, recorded maybe two more Christmas songs. Yeah. I think Christmas Tree Farm came after that. Oh, yeah. Um, So... Imagine, and then she puts it out on green vinyl, red vinyl, snow white vinyl, a picture disc of her holding like a snowman globe. I don't know. Like it would This be- is a good transition into my final oh, okay. moment okay. because it's also about Taylor Swift. Okay. You want her to extend the tour into 2029. Actually, Keith, I want her to take a little break. Oh, yeah. Well, that would be good, and too. And not because I don't want new anything from her. I love her. 
I she's touring all next year. She starts February all of 2024. All this year. Mm-hmm. She's starting in February uh, in Japan, and she goes until December. And she even had states in America again. Exactly. So she deserves to just tour, and that's it. But you know, she's not going to just tour. You know darn well, even though she's not announced it at, at the time of this recording, that Reputation Taylor's version album is coming. We have two more re-records coming. We also have self-titled debut. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. So we so we only have the self-titled debut and Reputation, those only ones left? Yeah, and I think she should the wait until collection. the year after. Although, to be fair, so this this year while she was touring, she put out two new re-records. In so, 2023. So maybe the plan, again, last year, 2023, <laughs> I'm really good at this. I know it's the new year, guys. I'll remember at some point. Um, but she put out her two re-records, Speak Now and 1989, in 2023. And so maybe the, t- the plan is... Touring this year again to roll out two re-records, maybe. I mean, I would or maybe not, a surprise album. I would not be surprised. <laughs> I would not be surprised if she puts out two re-records and a brand new studio album all in 2024. Is she just going to go into hibernation in 2025? Maybe then. I mean, she just needs she needs a pause, doesn't she? Does she? Or maybe she doesn't. She's getting a nice two month break right now. True. Like she's uh, doesn't Maybe. have anything in January. I just want Taylor to take a break. I just want her to live her best life, guys. Yeah. Well, me That's too. All. And she seems to like to work. <laughs> yeah. I guess that, that is that coin. her best life is is being very prolific. And now it's time for our interview with Robbie Williams. Robbie has a four episode documentary on Netflix now that sees him watching footage from throughout his career, starting when he was the youngest member of the UK boy band Take That, through him heading out on his most recent tour. It is quite a roller coaster watching back all the highs and lows from Robbie's life, so we can only imagine what it was like for him to do that. Um, but we talked to him about why he signed up for the project in the first place, what it taught him about himself, what perspective it's given him now that he's a dad, and how he can possibly still get out and tour the world. We saw how tough that was for him at his very highest peak. And speaking of touring, he also talks about Taylor Swift and other artists mounting three and a half hour shows and what a toll that can take on someone. So here's our interview with Robbie Williams. Hello to Robbie Williams and welcome back to the Billboard Pop Shop podcast. Hello there. Hello there, folks. We are here today because you have a brand new Netflix documentary out now, which is four episodes of you revisiting footage from throughout your career, starting with your teenage days and take that up until now. So can you tell us how this idea originally came about and what possibly made you sign up for it? Well, when Netflix and um, Ridley Scott's company come and say, we'd like to do a documentary about you and have it be on the platform Netflix, you kind of you know, I'm an attention seeker by trade, and um, I, I, I'm honoured. And you know, what, what, what else would an attention seeker say other than yes, please? <laughs> there is, there's a point in the film though where you tell the director that you almost cancelled on them that day. So, like, how many days did you film this over, and and how long were those days? Okay, well, there was a bunch of stuff that we didn't use. And then when we decided that it was going to be me in bed with my underpants on, um, it Thank was... Thank you, 25- by the way. That was lovely. 
<laughs> a pleasure. Absolute, absolute pleasure. It was 25 days in a row, basically. Wow. And it was up to six or seven hours a day. Yeah. So that's why you were like, maybe I don't want to do this today. <laughs> yeah, it was. I, I, you know, not many people on the planet have done anything like that. So there's no support groups for, you know, a trauma watch. But it was very interesting sort of leaving the room each day and then going to go and get in bed with my wife and trying to explain how it feels. It wasn't, um, it, it's only become therapeutic since it's been released. It wasn't mm. therapeutic at the time. It was just, a, it was traumatic. I, I, I just watching it, it was traumatic uh, in many ways. I mean, especially for, I mean, I watched it all in one sitting so it was a lot and um at, that, at some points i was just I, I had to turn my head down and not watch certain parts um because i was just like i can't this is uh, the, this is too much there was one particular part i'll get to the question in a second katie i swear um <laughs> where you were having a uh, a shot of steroids um and i'm like i can't watch this also i literally just gave blood yesterday so maybe that had something to do with it but i i was like I can't watch this. This is too much. I'm like, also, this is not my life. I'm watching Robbie Williams and I'm just seeing selected moments. Um, there was no question there. I apologize. Let me ask the question, Robbie. Um, That's okay. When you look back on the earliest footage, um, I was flabbergasted, by the way, at you know, seeing 16-year-old Robbie dancing in a shopping center parking lot with, in front of 20 people looking amazing, but I'm like the bravery that was involved to do that at such a young age. But when you look back on that as a teen, were you struck by just how young you were? And did it make it make it think of you? Did it make you think of your own kids, maybe now having to possibly be thrust in a situation like that? Well, um, I, I think that when my kids are 16, when the oldest one gets there, I think there will be a stark realization of exactly what I should and shouldn't have been going through at that particular moment. When I actually look at that footage that you're talking about, mm -hmm. the overwhelming feeling and thought that I have is how pointless the intricate dance routines were and how incredibly hard it was for me to learn those routines and how bullied I was because I wasn't picking up the steps. So to be honest with you, my big thought is that was completely and utterly pointless doing that choreography. Your fans might disagree with you I about mean, that part. <laughs> I, I, but, no, you, but you know, you look at One Direction and all they do is walk around the stage and then you've got people like uh, Westlife and Boyzone, and they just stand up out of their seats when there's a key change. So, you know, you're thinking about the um, the being 16 and what does that mean? What was I taking in? I wasn't taking that bit in. I was just taking in being annoyed about having to learn dance routines. I will say, uh, Katie, sorry. I mean, uh, to, to, to explain what Robbie is saying, like they were trying to be the British version of New Kids on the Block, sort of, and New Kids danced. So it made sense at the time. Also, if I'm just going to say, if we had take that in America, 
in the early 90s with the way you dress and the way you were styled and the way that you danced, that would have been revolutionary because, I mean, just the do what you I mean, like video could in have. itself. I mean, we could America have. America could have had that. It was, a different, oh, no, no, it was, tell, it was different. I tell you what happened, though. Grunge kicked in mm. uh, and we came over to America and had the most embarrassing time there promoting where every door and mind was shut. It was kind of boy bands. Well, it wasn't. And now they are not. And now we do this. And so, you know, when we, yeah, when we came to America, it was short. Um, you know, speaking, we, we've been talking about your kids. There are some scenes where you let your daughter watch along with you and some where you tell her that she's better to sit this one out. Um, one of the scenes that she watches is when you're in those early solo days and you're talking negatively about your old take that bandmates on stage. Did it give that footage any kind of new perspective, you know, having your daughter watching it over your shoulder? Uh, yeah, I was, I was embarrassed that that was her father. And I was embarrassed of what I said and how I went about it. But I was much younger. And, um, you know, I, I've always tried to entertain with whatever tools I have at my disposal. And my tools at my disposal at that point was um, regret, jealousy, and um negativity uh it was very of the time it was very 90s um in feel you know but um not to completely unkind and not representative of who i am as a person now and not really representative as a person who i was then you know it was um yeah embarrassing um uh, to to make a crash transition uh, in the film, before you go on stage to headline Glastonbury in 98, uh, you say that you're worried that you'll be, quote, found out. Uh, the idea of imposter syndrome wasn't really discussed back then. Uh, but is that possibly what you were dealing with at the time? I was dealing with a whole bunch of a lot of things. You know, that was imposter syndrome was one of them. I, I come from a place physically and mentally where this just wasn't supposed to happen to me and for me. And then all of a sudden I'm thrust amongst and in a place where the gods existed for me when I was growing up. And, you know, in my mind, it's kind of, well, it's only me. Why, why is this happening for me? And it's a, I think it's a British disease where you don't feel as though you deserve what is happening to and for you. It was one of my many isms. <laughs> um, Keith mentioned uh, that, you know, when you were really struggling on stage, you ended up taking steroid shots to, you know, get yourself through it. And I was thinking about today's touring artists you know, particularly like the Taylor Swift doing three and a half hour concerts this year and what it takes physically and mentally to to go through all that. So, you know, how did you get to a place where you were comfortable to tour the world again? And what do you hope your film maybe tells other artists that are at that, you know, stratospheric level about how to take care of themselves and speak up for themselves in that moment? OK, let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Why 
would you do three and a half hour sets? She does it for, I mean, she says she does it for the fans, obviously. Like that's what she's saying, but man, I don't know. It's so long. <laughs> no, but like, I, 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 listen, I love Taylor Swift, right? But you know, if you take Taylor out of the equation and whoever, Bruce Springsteen, Paul McCartney, Taylor, whoever, I, why would you do that to yourself? And why would you do that to a audience? It's a question, yeah. it's a, it, it, I, not to interrupt you, but it's a question that literally Katie and I have talked about. We're like, I don't know if she's contractually bound to do three hours, so why the hell is she up there? She's still getting paid the same amount of money. But anyway, you go, I, Rob, sorry. I, I mean, it, it's 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 wonderful and it's mind-blowing that they, they're able to do that, especially people in their 80s. But, you know, what do I want as a fan? I want to hear all of the hits, and I want to be entertained for 90 minutes to 100 minutes, and then I want to go home happy. I haven't got the attention to, to watch anything for three hours. If I look at a film that is now a two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour film, I don't watch it. I haven't got it in me. So your original question that I'm tr still trying to fathom out. How do you get through tours? Because when people think of tours, they have a snapshot in their mind of an adoring public showering love at you. And that's the thing that they think. And they're sort of like, that must be incredible. And it is. But the reality is you get on stage and you have this psychic draining and you have all of these drugs that you create inside yourself. And with any kind of drug, stuff that you take from the streets or stuff that you get from the doctors or the stuff that you create inside yourself, there is a payment. And the payment is the next day when normally you'd be on a sofa, cup of tea with your duvet over you, watching Netflix or whatever, recuperating. But you've actually got to do it again the next day. And then you travel and you fly and then you've got to do it again. And then you've got to do it again. And then you've got to do it again. Now, this tour that I've just done has been the most successful for me mentally and emotionally. And um, I think that a great deal has to do with the fact that I can override or make friends with the anxiety. But I'm still not there when it comes to touring. I don't know how to not let it damage me in some sort of way. Now, listen, it's not complaining because we get financially, um, you know, that financially it's incredible. It, it, emotionally, it's incredible. Physically and mentally, it's, it, it, it's no wonder that people sort of end up in uh, emergency rooms or rehab after tour or during tours, the 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 toll that it takes out of you is um, still a phenomena that I'm trying to overcome. And you say in the film that, you know, it, there's moments where it's brought you to tears, somebody just telling you that they've come to one of your concerts. So obviously, you know, you put yourself through all of this and but that's the, the reward, I'm assuming. I, I'm guessing that it's... Um, it, it, for me, I realized that I want something to die for. 
I need something to die for, what, what, whatever that reason is. And my something to die for is my wife and my kids and professionalism when I'm on tour or I do an interview or I do a TV show. You know, it is my because people will be going, yeah, the financial benefits of it are the reason that you do it. Look, I can't lie. That is incredible. But I think overriding that for me is the something to die for. You know, I, and I don't know why that is, but I, I think that it's just insane purpose. I know that I need purpose. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of, there's a, it's kind of sick, but there's been shows where, that on this tour where I've had no right of getting on stage at all. So I'm so sick. But in my mind, I'm like going, Let's see how far we can push this. Let's see how sick you can be without letting them know that you are about to collapse. And I guess it's it's like I say, it's having something to die for. That actually brings up a really interesting point, because watching, you know, four episodes of somebody's life, you kind of think you get to the end of the movie and like, Robbie's great. Everything's fine. Everything's good. But obviously there was a whole tour after that where you have to like put all this work that you put into yourself to work on stage and, and every night. Yeah. So it's I, not the know, end of your story, obviously. <laughs> no, I, I liked, I liked the end of the, I liked the end of the documentary because yeah, there was a happy ending with the, with the kids and the wife and stuff, but it was kind of more lifelike. The fact that, you know, at the end of it, I was like, and I overcome, and like literally, I think I say, and I overcome that, tick the box. Great. What's next? You know, it, it's, um, yeah, there's more, more realism in it. Cause it, because, because it's, a, it is an ongoing thing, you know, trying to figure out the whys and the wherefores of how you respond to life on life's terms. And, um, yeah. I just I'm just really, really grateful. I haven't I just had an overwhelming feeling of um gratitude for what I've been through and what is happening for me right now. I, I was really struck by the number of times throughout the film that you would tell interviewers along the way how you were truthfully feeling, that you were scared or you were anxious or you didn't think you could do it anymore, and how people kind of laughed it off like it was just your sense of humor or whatever um so what was it like to watch those moments back and see yourself really verbalizing what you were feeling and just have it kind of be ignored or or laughed off uh yeah how did that feel um i was just it was it was interesting mental health wasn't really talked about and when i talked about it back then I was derided for moaning or complaining. And um, that isolated me even more. In, in a place of isolation and depression and anxiety and body dysmorphia and agoraphobia and all of the obias, you know, to then on top be told that you shouldn't talk about it because how dare you? Right. It, it made it, it, it made it even worse. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, 
you you mentioned that you're going to come back to LA after tour. That's your home. That's where your family is. Um, living here in LA, both Keith and I, it was really remarkable to see you, you know, escaping the UK for Los Angeles to live some sort of like an anonymous life. Because from our perspective, you came directly into the belly of the beast of like paparazzi and Hollywood and, and all of that. So um, it also made me think about uh, David Beckham's Netflix series where he and Victoria also escaped to L.A. to get away from all of that. So were you truly not hounded by paparazzi and fans here or was it just better than it had been at home? Um, yeah, there was the belly of the beast at the time, but you could do it in the sun and you could do it behind gated behind gates and gated communities. But not only that, you know, there was a sort of, we say, I don't know if you, you know, telltales, grasses. So wherever you would be in the UK, people would know that if you phoned the tabloids, you could get money for telling people, telling about where they were and what they did. And uh, you couldn't think Sometimes I would think something and then it would be in the newspaper two days later and that would mess with my head. Um, so there was an anonymity in Los Angeles because people literally didn't know who I was. So, yeah, there was the paparazzi that didn't go to the valley. <laughs> the, paparazzi, <laughs> the paparazzi never went to the valley. <laughs> So I became friends with Encino and Sherman Oaks, you know, but on top of that, people just didn't know who I was. And that worked for me. I could be Bruce Wayne in Los Angeles and Batman in the rest of the world. Katie, before you move on, can I ask a quick follow-up question to that? Of Is that course. Okay? Um, when I was watching the, the show and it's, there's this juxtaposition between you finding peace and anonymity to a degree in Los Angeles. And that's compared to the sort of nuts craziness of the UK, which we still in America cannot absolutely comprehend what it was like for you, because it's just completely foreign to us for that time. Then you compare that to when you made the American promotion tour, um, you know, when you came here and, and did a ton of press, press around Millennium and Angels. And I wonder, do you think back upon that go at America and think maybe things worked out for the best the way they did because of what ultimately happened to you and when you moved to L.A.? Do you do you compare those two things together in your mind now? No, it was a conscious decision to stop promotion and stop any attempt at cracking America, because what I had was deep mental illness, situational mental illness, mixed with the stuff that, you know, my family has got in heaps. But I did realize fame and success in this moment is going to kill me. If I come to America, more money, more success, more fame. I've got a bunch of cash. What do I need? What do I need more than cash and record sales? I need anonymity. So uh, I came to America and I got offered lots of nice things in the States, some like big things, TV things. And um, I 
I turned them all down, much to the chagrin of my agent that was just leaving my house, scratching my head, scratching his head, going, what is he doing? Uh, and at the time, that completely made sense. If I was offered those things now, I'd snatch their hands off, you know. Oh, there you go. Simon Cowell, give Robbie a call. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm now a dad of four and um, I'm happy. So if anybody wants to offer me anything in the States, I'm, I'm available. I love that. There, there was a line in the film, um, which I think is, I mean, there's many great moments in the film, but this is possibly the line of the movie. Uh, I want to write Karma Police, but I'm writing Karma Chameleon. Um, so have you heard from Boy George about that? Yes, I have. Yes. He, uh, <laughs> he, he not, not personally, he didn't get in touch, but he tweeted, you know, maybe if you had have done Roberta, you would have had a hit in America. Oh, <laughs> okay. Which is, All which, right. is, which is fair enough, you know. I, I, I didn't mean to deride anything that... Uh, boy george has done I, I you know i just i wanted to be radiohead but i didn't quite manage it uh you've been celebrating 25 years of hits on your tour this year um which just wrapped up for well, 2020. it's about to wrap up he still well, has about to wrap up. what do you have one more date one more date yeah. one more date when people hear this it will have wrapped oh I yeah believe. that's true <laughs> um and then you have hyde park uh bst hyde park uh, next summer um what has the tour been like for you and um what do you have up your sleeve for Hyde Park that might be different from what people saw on this past tour? Well, what the tour has been like for me has been exceptional. My, my whole thing about this success that has been luckily bestowed to me in this lifetime was how to enjoy it and how to you know, have, have it not kill me. Uh, and I'm finally in the position at the grand old age of 50 that I now get to embrace it for all its forms and for all of the madness and just love it completely. So the tour has been sensational. Uh, on this particular tour, it's kind of been more stand-up act meets music. And because I've been interacting with the crowds more and sort of telling jokes and being a more all-round entertainer um, and being happy, I've absolutely loved it. And Hyde Park isn't happening until the middle of summer, so I'll worry about that when I have to worry about it. <laughs> it's I, I, I would say I've, I've been to shows at Hyde Park before. I'm in London frequently, and I I think... Obviously, it will be amazing, but uh, Robbie in Hyde Park, it's like peanut butter and chocolate. It should be fabulous. <laughs> Just saying. Oh, well, bless you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, the last time I spoke to you for this podcast uh, was in Los Angeles, and you were about to start your Las Vegas residency at the time. And, of course, you ended up having to cut it short because of the pandemic. Um, do you see yourself ever making your way back to Vegas, joining your countrywoman Adele there, perhaps? And Kylie? <laughs> And, and Kylie. Kylie, don't forget Kylie. <laughs> I'll tell you what, what happened was, so we come over to Vegas and it's just like basically a calling card to show off in front of my friends from Los Angeles and, <laughs> you know, show some of North America what I could do. 
And we were going to grow it. You know, we were going to grow it from the win and then go to Caesar's Palace. And then COVID cut that short. So what I'm actually going to do now is build my own hotel in Dubai and do it there from my own hotel. Oh, damn. Okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a lot so, harder for us to get to, though, Robbie. <laughs> yeah, well, well, bless you. I, I don't see coming back to Vegas on the bingo card for the, any near future, but it did definitely inspire me to be my own Steve Wynn. <laughs> Love that. Robbie's going to build his own resort in some fabulous uh, island, tropical location. And then Kylie can have a residency at the Dubai resort that Robbie builds. Absolutely. (laughs) Take take that, Spear. Um, (laughs) um, Okay, so finally, uh, this episode will be our first at the top of 2024. Uh, So do you have any New Year's resolutions for 2024, Robbie Williams? Well... I always I always write down a manifesting list, me and my wife, before the end of the new year of what we'd like to have and achieve for the next year. I am going to be 50 in February. And uh, more so than um, resolutions, I'd like to leave sugar in my first half a, de- a half a um yeah in my first 50 years i'd like to leave sugar and go forward without it because i'm i'm addicted to chocolate addicted to cake addis- addicted to chips that we call crisps uh, and it, it it just makes me sad when i eat it so i'd like to figure out how to rewire the brain i honestly thought as you were saying that i thought i said i leave sugar behind i'm like is that a british phrase and you're like no literally sugar literally sugar yeah literally sugar yeah yeah literally sugar so less new year resolution more 50 year old birthday coming up resolution well robbie we really appreciate your time today um thank you so much for just opening up yourself to that documentary because it was a wonderful thing to be able to to watch and experience so so thank you for that and good luck um in the new year Oh, bless you all. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Absolutely. Thanks, Robbie. Thank you. Be well. She won't forsake me. I'm loving angels instead. Thank you so much to Robbie. Um, it was so nice chatting with him again. Is this uh, your second or third time? Speaking? Second. Second. Yeah, the first time he was on the podcast, I apparently was not available. You must have been out of town. It was just me and you and him live together in person person, in our old office. Yes. And thank you for sharing. Robbie Williams came to the office to talk to you. I know. I'm sure he would have come here this time, but he was in another country. I think Switzerland. He was in Switzerland. Yeah. No, I, he's like delightful, which is great because I love, I mean, I love, I absolutely like idolized him as a young person. And now it's so cool to see that he's so, you know, great. All right. Well, uh, now it's time for our chart stat of the week, and uh, let's turn to the official UK singles chart. I know it's not a Billboard chart, but it's still chart. Oh, it's where Robbie dominates. Yes, in honor of our guest this week, Robbie Williams. He's achieved seven solo number ones on the chart there among his 31 top tens. But Katie, Hmm. can you name Robbie's first solo number one in the UK? Hopefully you don't already know this answer. Your choices are his debut solo single, Freedom, in 1996, 
his smash ballad Angels from 1997, which has spent 68 weeks on the chart, the most weeks of any of his songs. The barnstorming, rollicking number Let Me Entertain You from 1998, or the single that followed Let Me Entertain You, Millennium, also from 1998. Which of those was Robbie's first solo number one on the UK singles chart? I have to say first that I was so surprised by the timeline in the documentary because in America, Millennium was his first song. Right. And so I just assumed that was like his big debut. And then it's like, that was like this weird haphazard fake album they put together for the U.S. Like, it's not even part of his discography in the U.K. No. The ego has landed. That's not even, like, he he didn't even mention that because it's not a a proper album. No. And and Angels was before Millennium in the timeline in the U.K. In America, Angels came after Millennium. Came after. Threw me off. Um, So all that to say, I have no idea the answer to this. I'm going to guess Freedom. No. Okay. And it's not Angels because I just figured that was the most obvious, right? Not Angels. So we're still going. Let me entertain you. We're just going to keep going on the timeline. Nope. Millennium was his first. Millennium was his first number one in the UK. That's really surprising. It is. I was, because because Angels and Let Me Entertain You, like, I know those songs and I'm not in the UK. Right. And those were, like, those weren't really big hits. Well, Let Me Entertain You wasn't even a single in America. It wasn't a single here. But I know those songs, yeah. like, well. Yeah. And I think those songs just... They probably just had a weird chart week where they were probably up against something. They couldn't get to number one, but they endured. Well, I was going to say, and you said with Angels, it spent 68 weeks on the chart. Not unlike Dua Lipa's Levitating that was like, it peaked at number two, but like just stayed forever, you know? Or, you know, Blinding Lights is a bad example because that was a number one, but you know what I mean. But uh, just there forever. uh, Angels Angels is uh, so popular that when Taylor Swift took her reputation tour to the UK— and she had surprise guests each mm-hmm. night. Robbie Williams was one of them. He popped out of the stage, and they duetted on Angels together. And I always find a way to work Taylor into our interviews. This is the second time I've talked to him, and the second time we talked about Taylor. I mean— <laughs> It was it, organic here. Yeah, no, I, I this—it it, it made sense. And he volunteered all the extra information about, like, why? Why three and a half hours, guys? Like, why are we doing this? I mean, there, <laughs> there was a reason why in our interview, which was on Zoom, hopefully that was able—you were able to figure that out— I wore a Kylie Minogue mm. hoodie because he has collaborated with Kylie. Of Kylie kids. Kylie uh, makes a uh, brief, momentary appearance in the documentary. You just literally see her. See for her. A she yeah. doesn't actually. She doesn't say. You anything know what on I screen. forgot to ask Robbie about, and it was totally in my not in my questions, but in my notes that I took from watching the documentary. He, there was a whole thing about how much he loved D-Light. And I'm obsessed with D-Light. Oh, I guess he said it was like the first cassette or CD that he, he bought? It was, yes, it was like, it, it sounded like it was basically like the album that like made him fall in love with music. And he was just like talking about how he just listened to it on repeat in his headphones. And I was like, holy shit, that's my favorite D-Light album. I was dying. I'm like, why did I not bring that up to him? Well, I don't I'd love know to why. know what his love of D-Light, you know, where it stands today. The chills <laughs> that you uh, sp- spill up my back. <laughs> Uh, anyway, anyway. Uh, all right. Well, <laughs> there's, there's our chart stat uh, about Robbie Williams' uh, first number one on the UK singles chart. All right, we've reached the end of our big show. I also like I I, I binge watched as I think uh, as I told Robbie uh, that I watched all four episodes in a row. Each episode, they're a very easy watch. I mean, easy watch and like I was gonna say, it's not like a light watch. No, though. no, no. Uh, they're incredibly engrossing, uh-huh. especially like like I know. Some things about Robbie, but I it's 
it's different if you maybe lived in the UK and sort of right. lived through that era. Right. And it's just, it's incredible. It's. It, I wonder if it's even better for someone like us that's like, we always liked and admired and knew a few songs of Robbie's or whatever, but like weren't like the, you know, we didn't live in the UK. Right. It's almost... Like it's because it's like what that happened. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, and also, and also the sort of the footage that you get to see um, of him, you know, in his personal life, you know, on vacation. A oh lot my of, gosh! You know, a lot of things that um, you don't wouldn't normally see. And also, I had I had like you said, you had your question about delight. I'm like, I have so many questions. Like, I even asked you. Well, there's I can't I can't say it because it would sort of spoil kind of the narrative of it. But there were questions that I had where I'm like, Katie, uh, this thing that we saw happen, like, is did this get resolved? She's like, Oh yeah, everything's fine now. I'm like, Oh, I but wasn't it didn't sure. in the movie. But it didn't in the movie. Yeah. And also, there's just other things where I mean, I was sitting there watching. This is not this is not a surprise. But you know, in 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 life, Robbie left to take that. At least the at least his documentary sort of explained why that happened. And then he got back together with them at some point. I actually didn't even know that. What, uh, How which, did I miss that? Which part? That Robbie went back on tour with Take That. What do you mean you didn't know that? I mean, it was it must have been completely in the UK, right? Like yeah. well, it was in the UK and Europe. Yeah, it would have been nice. It was the, that would have been fun. I think it was the the prog- it was the progress tour. It was yeah. for, they had an album together, a reunion album. I know. And I, again, I say this as somebody who always has appreciated and loved Robbie. I did not know that. So you haven't seen any clips of this tour? Correct. Oh, my God, Katie. It's incredible. <laughs> no, it's a huge stadium tour that the the production is beyond. Oh, wow. It I mean, is, it looked amazing in the, the little bit we saw in the documentary. Tons of dancers, a huge band, an enormous stage. Like, just, it's... Insanity. And it was really sweet to see how he needed, he needed, like, he needed that, like, closure, I think, on yeah. that. So he needed to close the loop on that, that, like, portion of his life. And I was, I was so thrilled that they came back and sort of addressed his reunion with them and that moment of him and the other four members of Take That just backstage, just talking about getting back together. Because I was like, they have to address him going back to take that because the beginning of this documentary was all about Shows him. all the vitriol yes, between them. Which is so incredibly, like, negative and terrible. Yeah, he, like, talks shit about them on stage. So much. It's, yeah, it's really ugly. I didn't ugly. know any of that. I'm it's like, really ugly. So it was just very blah. So, anyway, it's, it's a very engrossing watch. I think we're selling it. Well. Like, <laughs> you should definitely watch it. We're not sponsored by Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> but... Yet, <laughs> you, you, even if you're even if you're only just sort of vaguely aware of Robbie, it's a fascinating look yeah. at a enormous pop star. I mentioned the David Beckham documentary when talking about Los Angeles, how they both kind of escaped to L.A. to like you know escape the spotlight, which is hilarious. Um, that Beckham documentary and the Robbie one, they're both four episode documentary series where they both revisit their like entire life and career and they're both great they're kind of good companion watches Mm. if I'm being honest and it's also another thing where like I knew a lot about David Beckham and Victoria Beckham but I learned so much stuff that I did not know Hmm. yeah now we're working for Netflix. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Guess we are. We've reached the end of our show, finally, truly. <laughs> uh, uh, we're off to a great start in 2024, at least on the podcast. That's right. Uh, any parting words? I mean, thank you for listening last year, and thanks for continuing the journey with us this year, you know? 
Should, should we uh, go out on one of Robbie's least favorite songs, at least oh, at the time no, he recorded it? Oh, no, we are not it? going out on Rudebox. That is not nice no, to him. No, I, I meant Rock DJ. Oh, I love Rock DJ. Well, Please no, go out on Rock DJ. In, in the documentary, <laughs> you got this feeling that he, it was like one of the songs where they was just like, we're going to make like sort of a goofy dance song. Right. And they did not realize that it was going to be. What a hit it was going like, to be. And gonna then be. they made Rudebox thinking it was going to be a hit, and then it was a dud. No, I did. I was not going to play Rudebox. <laughs> I was going to offer Rock DJ. <laughs> Um, I mean, I'll always say yes to Rock DJ. Great. Yes, well, please. Go out on Rock DJ. <laughs> and we'll see you guys next time. Bye. I don't want to rock DJ. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.